Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Unqualified. You know today's guest from Gossip Girl and more recently as the star of the hit series, You. Here he is, Penn Badgley. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hi, Penn. Hey, Anna. I've been listening to your podcast, Podcrushed. Oh, cool. Thank you. I love it that you examine sort of the early formative experiences. You are very good at it. Thank you. It doesn't always feel that way, certainly. I feel like we're stumbling around a lot. But because it is kind of what the whole thing is about, and because we have people tell middle school stories and just think about that time, it makes it easy, you know? Well, you're excellent at it and thoughtful and empathetic. You were born in Baltimore and then moved to Seattle. So there's Virginia in between there. Okay. My childhood was in Virginia. Baltimore is kind of a technicality. I don't remember it. I was there only until I was two. I lived in Virginia until I was about, what, seven or eight? I guess probably eight, and then Seattle. And it was not even Seattle. It was like the sticks outside of Seattle. I was born in Baltimore, and I moved to the Seattle area when I was six. Wow. And I worked at the Seattle Rep and Issaquah Village Theater. Issaquah? So I lived outside of Issaquah on Tiger Mountain. Do you know Tiger Mountain? Yep, okay. I know. Wow. Wow, that's very rare. I know. I was reading that you worked at the Seattle Children's Theater or you were involved with it, yep. which is a great theater. I was just thinking about the Seattle Children's Theater recently and recalling the two plays that I did with them, one of which was written by, you know, like the 15 and 16-year-olds who were the stars of the thing, like an ensemble, this reeling ensemble of like young progressive kids in the, what, mid-90s, and it was called Barbie's Demise. Amazing. There's a distinction, I think, with kids. When I talk to people on the podcast, actors on the podcast, very few of them have done theater. Yeah. I value those early experiences being that kind of kid actor, the kind of actor that made like 200 bucks for a 60 show run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, to me, what is good about it is no matter what age you start at, you have to be in touch with the pure craft in and of itself. You know, if you can't enjoy like the reading of a script or the rehearsal of a thing or hashing something out with castmates, talking to a director, whatever it is, if it's all about the final result, which, you know, everything that you see on camera, everybody's sort of oriented towards the final result. But if that's what you think you're getting into it for, which the younger you are, the more you're going to conflate many things and confuse things. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, why are your parents letting you do this and how much do they want you to be famous, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, a lot of child actors, there's that dynamic, if not all to some degree. So it's like, yeah, I think that if you're young, you need that more. You need some real experience of developing a love of an art form. Yeah, to me, what's always been kind of jarring but I've worked with some actors who really seem to hate it. I get what you mean, yeah. It's very possible that I've seemed like that kind of actor to 
at least one person at some point on a bad day during a bad time, you know? Right. What is your relationship with fame? I think it equates more for most people to love, unfortunately. That's, of course, not what it is. Even if you want power, what do you really want? You want love. You want to be accepted. Let's be real. If you're craving power, your parents ignored you. Yes, are there other social circumstances that contribute to that? Is it just about, like, childhood experiences? No. But formative experiences are formative. Like, the first things that happen to you tend to matter Mm, I just don't necessarily need to say the most, but they do a lot, you know? And so to me, power is actually about love. It's wanting and needing love. And truly in our culture, we have so little understanding of how to express it, how to receive it, how to identify it. We don't even have the right dialogue for it. We just have one broad word. Right, exactly. How old were you when you first felt like you were in love? Huh, that's a good question. Oh, 21. Did you have crushes as a young kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I had a girlfriend for four years, <laughs> from 15 to 19. And I can understand now that, well, love, okay, so love looks a lot of different ways. We never had the experience of falling in love. I can reflect on it now as a relationship that was a really unfortunate formative experience for both of us in a way. And yeah, I just knew that it was in some ways a really negative and toxic experience for both of us at the time. But reflecting on it now, it also was like we were clinging to each other in a way just for safety because we were both child actors and we were surrounded by a lot of chaos. She two years ago passed from the effects of alcohol. And so the reason I share that is because it's like this is a person who when we first met was already struggling with that and we were young teenagers. And that's why when you ask me if I was in love, I mean, did feelings of love and affection exist between us? Well, of course, that's actually not that rare. Were they allowed to flourish? And did we have any examples around us to look at to nurture the love? No, not even remotely, not even close. And so for that reason, the experience of being in a relationship for nearly four years as a teenager, it was a tough one, but we didn't even know why we were sticking it out. And then, you know, I'm blessed to every relationship I had in my 20s as an adult, and then finally the one that would turn into my marriage has actually been so healing and not like that. Right, sure. That's why I can speak with some kind of ease and transparency about it. So here's the tragedy of the position I felt I was in for a long time. I didn't want to be in a relationship for at least half of the time. But I had no, again, no friend support, no family support to sort of indicate as to how... Like, if I saw myself in that position at 16, 17 years old, I would talk to that boy and, and listen, because who knows if he would hear me. It's more like, really think about what's happening. And when you're in it, it's so hard to think of ending it depending on who you are. It's so hard. And sometimes that's a sign that you shouldn't end it. Sometimes it's a sign that you really should. Mm-hmm. And when you're young, you know, you need guidance, you need role models, you need examples. Whether you look to movies, it's basically not there. <laughs> you know, you look to books, it's basically not there. You look to songs, it's basically not there. I love art, but modern art doesn't have any great guidance around love. So you have to be getting it from friends and family. That is a fascinating statement, Penn. Yeah, isn't that kind of sad? It should be inspiring too, but it's a little, oof, you know. Well, I've always wanted to ask a guest this. What has been a work of art that has really stopped you? Well, the one the one that has stood the test of time is uh, D'Angelo's second album called Voodoo, which came out in 2000. Music has always spoken to me most as a medium. So that one has been the most, I think, impressive in my life and the most, at certain points, influential. You know, there's a lot of love in it, but there's not great guidance around love. It's all the same, you know? It's like... 
The conflation of love with sex, which is, I mean, at this point, it's like, it's fucking boring. How could anybody find that compelling and mature at this point? But, you know, we still do. But yeah, it's more of that. But with so much soul, and frankly, because D'Angelo, with a profound, like, religiosity behind it, a profound spiritual orientation. I mean, spirituality and religion are not necessarily the same thing, but there's a lot of gospel influence there, specifically in the music, but in the spirit. And so therefore, I think the reason it impressed me so much at the soul level was because it was speaking to my soul, whereas a lot of the other things I was engaging with at the time were not. In your dating history, were you the person who tended to end the relationships? So I can tell you right up, I have been in four relationships. The fourth one was my marriage. And um, we're learning a discipline where it's like, you know, we have every intention to keep it going as long as we're around. So I don't have a more typical dating experience or what people imagine to be a typical dating experience, particularly for somebody in my position. I've actually been on, I think, one date and not with anybody that I was in a relationship with. So let me think. They've all started and they've all ended in a similar fashion, which was like totally mutual and just a clear response to what's happening. So let's see, the first relationship that was a really long and tough one, I did end it because I just was like, there's no way this could possibly go on. And that was hard, but relieving. And then the ones in my 20s, so the two before my wife now, very mutual, very, very mutual, hard. There was definitely heartbreak for both parties, but they were both kind of identical in the way that it was like both people seeing like we're growing in different ways and we need to just recognize that. And it was in both cases, I think, around the two-year mark, something like that. Uh-huh. Which I think is typical. It's like you either come to that place and you both sort of like the way you have to train a tree or a plant or whatever, you sort of let nature nature, but you have to nurture it too as the gardener because you know better than the plant in a way if you're a good gardener. So it's like you either grow your relationship where you're both headed towards more understanding together, more growth together, more love together, more stuff together. And you see that or, you know, because of the lives you're leading, probably if you're in your 20s and living in a city, it's even more individualistic than, <laughs> than any other time and place, then you're probably going to end it at around about two years. I don't know the stats on dating, but it's out there. I mean, there's a lot of science behind this. That I think people sometimes leave this stuff up to feelings of magic, which is quite superstitious, based on the movies that you know you and I have been in. There's some clear data behind all this stuff, and it shows us a lot. People would be saved from a lot of unnecessary heartbreak and confusion if we just were a little bit more methodical about approaching relationships, I think. I want to hear about a heartbreak, and it could be industry, it could be relationship, it could be family. So I had like a case of somewhat unrequited love, which I thought was love, when I was 20. And I experienced it as heartbreak. Now I look at it and I'm like, well... I mean, I definitely used it to sort of grow, you know, emotionally, spiritually and stuff. But at that point, I'd never experienced such a heartbreak, even though it was like a less than two weeks spending with someone. How did this go down? So we met through a friend. She was Australian. And so what added to it was there's like a time, there's a deadline on when she's got to leave. I think it was nine or 10 days. Oh. You know, we never slept together. I think she was a little bit older than me. She was probably 20. I just remember that because she bought the vodka that we drank the first, like, you know, long night of just being together that we spent. And did you spend it just, like, laughing and, like... Well, I mean, to be fair, it was more than that. <laughs> I mean, it was... We were... We were physical. You know, we were, like, making out and just, yeah, talking, laughing. And I think her experience was similar. 
we were enchanted with one another. Uh-huh. And at the time, I had a nice car because I had worked enough as a child actor. But at the time, it was in the shop, so I had this beat-up old Dodge Aerovan that my mom drove. That like, like the windows rolled down, and there was like no oh, AC, yeah. and it was like it, it was felt all throughout white, grimy Aerovan with like gray felt seats. And years later, when we met, we're just kind of like laughing about it all. She told me that she didn't believe that I had a car in the shop. She thought <laughs> she thought that that was just my car, and I was really embarrassed, which didn't even occur to me. But yeah, so like we spent just about a week, week and a half, just going to clubs, trying to see like live music. We didn't really know what to do together. I remember just being really insecure the whole time, but like totally enchanted with this person who seemed like more of a woman than I'd ever been with, just because I think the slight cultural difference, and it was magical in a way. And a relief, too, I imagine, from what sounds like a pretty torturous relationship. I mean, I was in need of, like, something that was light and fun and happy, yeah. Yeah. I never experienced that even remotely before that, actually, at 20 years old, which is unfortunate. Youth is meant for lightness, and yet sometimes it's not. Oh, man. And what made it a heartbreak, I think, I don't know that it would have been as much of a heartbreak I never had like what you'd call a problem. And I happen to be sober now and I've been sober for something like seven or eight years. But at this point in time, I went on a little bit of a bender at the encouragement of some good friends, but friends who weren't thinking well. (laughs) So we went to Coachella together at the very end and took ecstasy. And then coming back, you know, the way people like to keep the party going in L.A., I had friends who were, you know, the whole like, I don't know how this happens outside of Hollywood or New York City in finance, but like there's this thing where like three or four people or five people will like hang out and do coke all night, which I was not a person who ever did that. And I was with some good friends who did that. And I was like, well, you know, fuck it, I'll just. And so I spent, I think, something like two nights doing that. And the result in my early 20s, I mean, good Lord, like the chemical fallout of what was already a genuine sort of emotional experience was profound. Like for six months. Oh. I'm saying for six months, it felt like I was still really pining or hurting or nursing a wound. I'm not saying for six months I was unstable and depressed. I'm saying for six months, it felt like I really was pretty consumed by the idea that I had lost an opportunity with this person that I wasn't going to get back. So I was fixated. And, you know, drinking even a little doesn't help that. And yet it's one of the things that we all turn to. It's a cultural norm, you know, to turn to something for help. And I think it really didn't help, of course. I do think that our memories, we sharpen things. We romanticize things. I mean, Mm, we get a lot of callers who are clearly in a bad relationship But they will always talk about how they're with a great man and everything was good for a while, but now there's this. And it's like, how is that the simplistic idea of the story? Why do we need, especially as women, I think, to affirm how great our relationship is to our friends and family? I do think that that's natural. I think men would do it more if they were more in touch with their feelings. I don't think that's even a bad thing on one level. I think on one level, you don't want to be in a bad relationship, so you want to reflect on it in a way like it's good. And on another level, it's actually a good idea to try and see the best in something. Yeah. However, that has to be taken at the same time as the profound truth that, like, a dysfunctional relationship is as toxic to the body as smoking a pack a day. Again, there's a lot of science behind this. So I think it's very hard to see things clearly. It just is. 
you know, when you're feeling a lot. I appreciate how analytical you can be. Which is not always a great thing. You know, I'm putting on my analytical hat in a way, which also maybe I should take off. No, no, but because like the idea of magical thinking, like the yeah. idea of horoscope, mm-hmm. it makes me wonder what your relationship is with like death and spirituality. The reason I don't like subscription to astrology is because it becomes something like spiritual eugenics. So if you think about it. Totally. It's saying that based on where and when you were born, you are composed in your most essence in a way that can be defined by other people as clearly good or bad or something. It's fucking crazy, actually. Uh And it's not spiritual. However, the arrangement of the physical universe when you're born into it and the orientation of your soul as having a unique purpose and mission in life, I think is significant. Now, the way most people talk about astrology is not like that. Most people talk about astrology in a way that I think, again, hot takey McGee, it becomes something like spiritual racism. You know, it really is like just completely superficially identifying people, but believing that it's true about their core Based on your what? Based on what? Your long-term education in a topic? No, based on some shit you've read in a magazine a few times or many times. I mean, come on. What are Scorpios? They're sexy, dark, and mysterious and dangerous. It's just not true. It's just not true. Our need for categorization as humans. is so extreme. It really is. Not just always necessarily as people. I mean, I believe that the human being is a really long arc of time and we're in such a small one and we like to make generalizations. But yes, currently we have to categorize. Totally. I understand that there should be some kind (laughs) of filing system that we crave that. Yeah. So many people identify with astrology these days. So I do want to say something to clarify. I actually studied astrology for about two years. Oh, you did? Yeah, mostly with a person who I knew personally and who I would Zoom with in the days before, you know, Zoom. Uh, His name is Adam Ellen Boss. I want to shout him out, a brilliant thinker and astrologer. And then I studied the work of, amongst other astrologers, Stephen Forrester. And the reason I'm mentioning them is because they're examples, of which there are many, of people doing incredible work in that field And it is something like a science, it's something like an art, it's something like a belief system, it's something like therapy. Look, anyone applying themselves to the study of the reality of the human being, whether you choose to call that the psyche, the mind, the heart, the soul, the body, you know, we're going to find things that are consistent and we're going to find ways to categorize them. And so if someone is really fascinated with astrology for the time being, I think that's great as long as they're not using it as the opposite of, like, genuine, courageous introspection. Like, if you're using it as a tool to better yourself and not to judge others so simplistically, then it's great. If you're using it mostly to think about yourself and how you can grow and improve and sort of appear in the world with more humility and capacity to serve others and be happy, then great. But if it really is just another way for you to create your sort of Twitter feed, to create the hall of mirrors and the sort of spiritual concourse of yes men, but you have yes angels or yes planets instead, like then I think it's just as bullshit as anything else. And unfortunately, I think that's the way that we're encouraged to explore it because that's kind of the way in pop culture we're encouraged to explore everything. And we tend towards superstition if we're not really that searingly honest with ourselves. So then I think astrology can become quite problematic. And that's when it is something like spiritual eugenics, which is a real hot take I acknowledge. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Joya. Hi, Joya. Hi. Como esta? Bene, bene. You? O parlo un po'. You speak a little of Italian. Mm, sì, ho, ho studiato a Siena, ma oh, 20 anni fa. Ah, okay. But you, you speak very well. That is so kind, but <laughs> it's truly one of the only complete phrases I remember. Oh, I can teach you whatever you want. I would love that. Your language and your country, I am in love with. Thank you. Thank you for your letter. I'm here with Penn, who is lovely. And will you tell us what is happening? So basically, I had a roommate for almost five years until June of 2022. And we became great friends. I mean, I always consider her as a sister for me, even though she is older than me. But I always had this thought in my mind that I was like the one who put it more effort than her in this relationship. So I was like, okay, maybe I still have to understand this situation. But since we don't live together anymore, there weren't any occasion to do together. And she always the one that says how she missed me, how she wanted to do things with me. But there weren't any occasion. And so I had to go to Barcelona in December and I had a flight back to Rome like late at night, around midnight. And she told me, oh, you know, I can take you from the airport and we will go together. We will go drink beer. We will do something. And I was like, oh, okay, so we can see each other. That would be great. And then like a few hours before I had to take the plane, she basically bailed on me because she said like, I want to have dinner with a friend. Can you wait like three or four hours at the airport alone? And so I got a little mad because everything was planned. And your feelings were hurt. Exactly. And so I told her that I was going to another place with a friend so she could have had that dinner. And she, we started to have an argument because she didn't understand my situation because I told her that I was tired, that I was feeling sick because it was winter. And she was trying to say like, oh, but I wanted to have this dinner because I didn't want to wait you at my house. And so we started an argument. Oh, you miss her. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. And she hurt your feelings. Yeah, but I always expect something like that because she bailed on me a lot of times, but we didn't see each other for like six months. So I thought that something was changed, but apparently not. And I told her these things and then she told me things about uh, talking about our past together that I was like, I mean, you don't have to say this because there weren't uh, beautiful things to say because of all the circumstances. 
So trying to make me feel the guilty. Right. So was she mad at you? Yes, she was mad at me because I told her, like, once I landed in room, I told her that I was not going uh, with her. And she also got mad because since I like to provoke sometimes while I'm having an argument, I said, I care more about what you do than what you say. So since she heard this a lot from me, she got mad also for this reason. A friendship relationship and friendship love can almost be more devastating than a relationship with a lover, I think. It can be, in a way, almost more confusing because we don't so narrowly define it, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like maybe because she was a little bit older that she always had a little more power in the friendship, do you think? I think that's true because I say yes easily. I mean, I just care about the company, not about the situation. While she's more the one that she just wants to do her things and you have to say yes to her things. Right, she demands or asks things of you and you are generous. And you want to be her friend. Oh, gosh, I've had some friendships that have been really heartbreaking. Some of my bigger heartbreaks in life have been trying to become friends with somebody who doesn't want to be my friend as much as I want to be their friend. And I think it definitely helps getting older, if that's a consolation. But when was the last time you guys spoke? We saw each other on Monday. Oh. And as soon as I saw her, I was like, you know, I'm still mad about it. I would like to talk about it. And she said, uh, I don't know how to say it in an, in an English word, but she said like, okay, so try to chill out right now because I don't want to have an argument. I don't want to fight all over again. And so I was like, oh, okay. And I mean, I have to see her just for an hour. So I just let it pass by. Huh. Good. Good for you. I think that was a strong move. I'm sure it was painful. How did you end things on Monday? We talked for an hour and she keeps telling me that she wanted to have a holiday with me, maybe in April. And I was like, I told her in a sarcastic way that I didn't want to go with her. And then before I left, I basically said, okay, you know, we'll catch up later. Maybe we'll talk about the argument another time. And the day after she started to text me like nothing ever happened. I didn't reply to her. Joya, I'm always hesitant to ask this question, but do you mind telling me your ages? I'm 23 and she's 26. So this is like the time in life where you absorb everything. Yeah, I mean, age is not always the same as maturity. I want to tread lightly because really not knowing you and not knowing your friend and not knowing like the reality of the dynamic between you guys. To me, I like to kind of step back for a moment. And remember that in all things as people, the only thing you ever have any control over is not even how you feel, it's how you respond to your feelings. You don't have control over her, not even close. You certainly don't have any control over the way she feels, nor how she's going to respond to you and your feelings or her own feelings or anything. And people forget that. I think people don't hear that a lot. When you're young, relationships, whether they're romantic or friendly, you're constantly engaged in what feels almost like, I mean, you used the word power earlier, Anna, like this power struggle. And I think that's a misconception. I'm not saying what you were saying about power is not true, Anna, because power dynamics exist, but we don't realize how much we're competing yes. with our loved ones for what we imagine to be power in a relationship. The reason I'm saying this is because like, I neither want to give you advice that's foolish and I don't want to like armchair psychoanalyze you. Penn, I have a great example of what I think of what you're saying. 
and it was incredibly impactful in my life. My best friend slept with my husband at the time, my first one. And I was more in love with my friend Mm. than my husband. Yeah. She was like alive and creative and funny and a treasure to me. And when I found this out, I spent four years at least imagining what it would be like to run into her Mm. and how I was going to like tear her down publicly, you know, like I wanted to tell everybody how this person hurt me. And then I ran into her on an airplane. We were exiting the airplane. It was jaw dropping. I always imagined maybe seeing her at a club in Hollywood or something like that. And we both just collapsed in tears and just hugged each other. We were crying all the way to the baggage claim. And we're great friends. She is incredibly close to me. And what I realized was that that was my emotional reaction. The truth in my heart was like, oh, I love her. I love her. And I'm really grateful for that realization because it has been kind of beautiful. We're only ever going to grow as people if we default to love and forgiveness individually as people, you know. That's always what we should strive for. Now, at the same time, some people are just going to continue to treat you poorly. And that might be happening here. By the way, you might also be misinterpreting greatly a lot of what she's doing. You could be needing to understand something better. And maybe you're miscommunicating. I don't know. It's always possible. Certainly when you're married, for instance. I mean, what I'm learning is like, it doesn't matter who's right almost ever. That's maybe a dumb generalization. But at least like you need to work with your feelings and understand how you are going to not just feel better, but find actual peace and become a better person, you know? And so like, you might need to sort of exit this relationship somewhat gracefully in a way that can be loving and forgiving, which is like, and I'm sorry, I wish you well. And at the same time, I need to remove myself from like a more constant interaction with you because what happens when we get together, look, I'm not even trying to accuse you of being right or wrong here, we argue. Like, that's toxic for both of you. That's not helping either one of you in your pursuit of happiness. So, like, in that case, it almost doesn't matter what's actually happening because rarely in a relationship can two people see what's actually happening. What you're seeing is what you feel, you know? And you're telling a story around it. You're doing just a bunch of meaning-making. You're interpreting what she's saying and doing all the time according to you and everything that you've experienced before you even met this person by the way, like all relationships at some point go back to our parents. It's just something in your 20s that you end up contending with. Yeah, yeah, I'm dealing with. Yeah, and you're going to find this in your romantic relationships. You know, you have to take responsibility for the fact that you might find yourself in relationships like this more often than not. And, you know, the same way you should be forgiving with somebody about their misgivings, try and be forgiving with yourself. This is one of the hardest things to do. I'm kind of speaking in broad generalizations here to help frame what I think is like Certainly, there's no way for us to tell you what to do. We could tell you what to do, and it might be the quote-unquote right or better or more mature decision. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you're going to go do it. It doesn't give you the ability to go do it. Exactly. Right. If you love this person and you want to maintain this friendship... And do you want that? Do you want the friendship to continue? Like, how do you feel? I mean, I think she's like the funniest person that I know because she's clumsy and a lot of stuff. So I would like to keep this friendship maybe in a superficial way, not more like a real strong bond. 
But on the other side, she told me a year ago, I think, that she took a lot of time for granted. And so in my mind, it keeps running me this thing in my head. And my therapist told me that there are people that can give you like 100 and people that can give you like 50. And you can accept that 50 or even, you know, cut the relationship. And so I'm trying to understand if it's like worth it to continue this for me or not. What about a practical strategy? If this is kind of haunting you and tugging at you, I've definitely been the selfish friend for sure. But my friends that have stayed with me understand that. But what if the strategy for you right now is proceed with generosity? Call her after this, leave her a voice message, tell her how much you love her. Don't lead with anything about the fiasco. Just tell her how beautiful and funny she is and that you miss her. And I think the caveat is that as long as you can do it actually in the spirit of generosity, which is hard because what that means is you do not expect anything in return. That's right. If you can lead with love and compliments and praise without resenting her the moment she doesn't reciprocate, which by the way, you're entitled to feel bad about that. So it's like if you're not there, then you're not there. So don't lead with generosity. It really depends on how you actually feel and what your capacity is. Yeah. At 23, it's hard. It's easier as you get older, which is like one of the few gifts of getting older. (laughs) But I wonder if that would make you feel better. Does that make you feel like, I don't know if I want to do that? Or does it make you feel like that sounds like a nice idea? No, I think that's a nice idea because maybe she can do the same, like not telling me how she loves me, but maybe telling something that I didn't expect from her. Maybe, but you can't expect it, though. I will definitely try. Yeah. So you're right about that. Like, I want to just honor how you're feeling and like, you're right about that. A real friendship is what you just described. However, this might not be a person capable of that. So if you're doing it in the spirit of actual generosity and like the sort of love that does not expect anything in return, then you can't even think, well, it would be nice if she did that back. And again, I really want to honor, like you're having an appropriate impulse that you want something back because that's a relationship. One of the things that people do in all relationships that is so hard is like not really realizing how kind of hurt and angry they are and trying to paper that over with whatever distracts us, which by the way, now with phones and everything, it's just like there's endless distraction from how we actually feel, which makes it hard to address. You are entitled right now to be in pain. You're entitled to all of your feelings. You're entitled to take time if you need it. Maybe the best thing for you to do would be like completely take care of yourself and not speak to her for as long as you want. That would be fine. But who knows what is actually going to serve you best. But I think what we need to do for ourselves in these situations is establish like North Stars. Like, what do I want? Do I want this relationship to continue regardless of the toll it might take on me? You know what I mean? Like, like what's the North Star for you, if I'm making sense? Yeah. Penn is exactly right. This is about you. This is about your sense of like trust and lovability and what makes you happy, what makes you feel safe. I remember romanticizing all of my friends. Like to me, in my head, they were all like beautiful, way prettier than I was and smart and funny and wild. And I didn't have that many, but like the two, essentially the girls that I'm thinking of were like these wild horses that I just wanted to be a part of their life. And of course they devastated me. 
One of them wrote on my locker, fuck you, Ferris, in this big black pen for everyone to see. She would prank call me. Do you remember those days? (laughs) (laughs) But it was heartbreaking. And I had to let her go. I just had to realize she was a liability. I don't know, Joya, if that is your friend necessarily. But I do want you to be able to move forward with your own independence. You're going through a heartbreak. Yeah. And you have to listen to your gut. If it makes you feel good to give generosity and love to her, even though it might not return, then that's important. To me, it's like, here's how you should try that. If your goal is to do that in every one of your relationships and be that person and make this like a trial run. But, you know, any trial run can fail fantastically and end in a wreck. I guess the point is, is like, what you've described sounds to me like you even sort of recognize that you're more invested in the friendship than your friend. Is that correct? Yeah. It's hard to break out of those patterns. And what I would say is like, It sounds like if this is a constant sort of pain for you, you might need to liberate yourself from it. However, if you were to sort of leave this relationship behind you, it does not mean that the same pattern won't develop again. That's always possible, if not likely. So I think you're just going to have to chalk up the pain as an opportunity to learn about yourself. And growth is not easy, and they're not a lot of other friends or even family maybe depending on you know your situation who are going to encourage you to do the thing that's going to help you grow yeah because a lot of people are actually going to help you avoid pain and that's not the same thing as growth yeah joya i know that you're a generous friend and i want you to cultivate the friendships that honor that this is your life and it doesn't depend on her thank you so much both of you thank you so much Yeah. thank you joya bye bye First of all, you're great, Penn. Oh, thanks. For being perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm always going to do that because short of knowing them better, you know what I mean? Oh, totally. And I tend to always... You clearly love them right away. I really do. Yeah. And so I'm just going to tit for your tat. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, Shanine. Hi, Anna. Hello. Hi, Pin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your letter and your patience. Will you tell us what's going on? 
Yeah, I feel, I mean, up until very recently, I was kind of skeptical about it, but I think my love life is kind of cursed. So tell us more. Yeah, we got to get into this. <laughs> well, I've always been really fascinated with the idea of Valentine's Day and the gifts and the romance, and especially in middle school and high school, the idea of, you know, the bear and the flowers is all very, you know, mesmerizing and exciting to me. So me and my friends were kind of late bloomers. So I had a friend who knew this guy who was known for like spoiling girls. And she was like, Yo, he has a crush on you. You should go out with him for Valentine's Day and get the gifts and then just break up with him the next day. So I did. And it was a really hard breakup. I remember his tears. Oh. I remember him begging me not to break up with him the next day. And I mean, ever since then, there's been no romance in any of my relationships. Valentine's Day, I haven't received a gift since that very Valentine's Day, 22 years ago. <laughs> um, there's always an excuse when I am dating someone, they're sick, it's a retail holiday, and we don't need to celebrate that to express that we love each other. I mean, for me, it's not really even just about receiving. It's also about having someone to give. Sure. Mm. I'm looking for a reciprocal romance and it's feeling kind of impossible. And you pegged like February 14th <laughs> as like the symbol of <laughs> the devastation. For me, that also goes back to February 14th was my grandmother's birthday. And my grandparents were married for 60 years and they were very passionate and they were very expressive with gifts and things as far as their love language too and so i remember like where did this bracelet come from what i'm sensing shanine is that you have this really romanticized idea of romance i want you to find love how do we do that how do we open up your heart as opposed to you being cursed I mean, look at you. You're gorgeous. You're hysterical. <laughs> you're confident. Like, you're amazing. How do we open up your heart to other people? Oh, I am a people pleaser. So for me, I feel like it's been a lot of giving, 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 giving. And it's never been reciprocal. I believe that. But I also think that you are defensive. Like, I wonder if you have been truly receptive to love. And if you're drawn to somebody who is not generous always. Yeah. So because of my life experience and just the phase of life I'm in, you know, my wife and I, like, we see kind of proactively, you know, preventatively. We have a, a counselor or whatever you want to call it, a therapist, and we practice what she calls noble listening, this imago method. And I think what I'm learning is that specifically romantic relationships, which are primary attachment relationships, which are always going to end up being a reliving of your relationship with one or both of your parents or your primary caregiver. You know, as a child, when you had that primary attachment, it was either with your mom, it might have been with your dad, it might have been with your grandma, whoever that person is. And at some point, it always comes down to mom and dad, even if they weren't there, which then is a thing, right? Mm -hmm. We're always living out shorter or longer cycles of that first cycle in some way. And we're either learning how to end some of that and start new cycles, or we're struggling to do that. Save for relationships that contain like the kind of abuse that you need to address in a very direct and kind of clinical way. Save for that, I think it's best for you, for anyone's personal happiness, to focus on what they can change about themselves, which is the only thing I've said this in the last call. I will say this until I know something that is more wise. The only freedom that we have as people 
And the only thing that we have any control over is not even how we feel. It's how we respond to what we feel. You can't control a single other thing in the world. You can't. So if you think about human freedom, we talk about freedom all the time from the social level to the personal. People want freedom in relationships. We want freedom in societies. And by the way, people deserve freedom. However, what is freedom for? And in this case, I'm just speaking about relationships, romantic relationships. The only freedom that you'll ever have, even if you have it, is how you respond to how you feel. Because when you're bad, do you choose to respond, you know, with grace and nobility and honor or something lesser? By the way, we basically always are going to respond with something lesser than that. It's very hard to do that. So if that's even what freedom is for, if that's even what like happiness is a pursuit of, is like just so that I can respond better to how I feel, which is going to be any kind of way. Think about what that does to the way we approach relationships if you really internalize that. And it's hard to do because we respond to things based on stuff that happened to us, almost even pre-verbal memory. Like we struggle over the automatic responses, which are old, and then we try to get into a new response, which is hard. It's so painful to do. Are you speaking to the idea of like who we are attracted to and who we're drawn to? Yes, but to me, like, it's not as simple as like, oh, I'm attracted to this kind of guy. I think, unfortunately, we reduce things to that. And I'm sorry if I'm like going off on a tangent here and if this isn't helpful to you, but I think I have to be straightforward about my perspective. So you very well could often be wronged in the relationships you're in. However, the only way you're going to change that is taking responsibility for how you enter into relationships with people who are going to wrong you. It's hard, by the way. I'm like, my uh, heart goes out to you. Because the people that harm us are also the most attractive. That's true. Yeah, but there's a reason for that, by the way. And again, it has to do with your early experiences because in a healthy family dynamic, I don't know who has those. I know some people do. But like in a healthy family dynamic, also supported by like a very just society, which we also don't live in, people are not naturally attracted to people who will harm them. That's not always the response that a truly supported, empowered individual is going to have. Unfortunately, we're not all supported and empowered. So, you know, it's like you're not in this alone. You should expect and demand reciprocity from the people in your life. And if you're not getting that, the hardest thing about it all is that the first steps can't be looking at them and blaming them, even if they're blameworthy. You're so right. We do tend to approach things, especially if you've been hurt, with a degree of defensiveness. Yeah, and it's so hard to change. You've probably not seen the opportunity to be with somebody who would reciprocate because of this way you're oriented. And I'm not blaming you for that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't see opportunities that I don't see because of the way I'm oriented, right? Like, we all have our orientation. But... You can only take responsibility for what you're responsible for, which is like how you respond. I will say that the relationships usually turn into friendships. I, there aren't many exes that I can't call and still have a conversation with. That's beautiful. That's commendable. Yeah. You know, like the one that I would really, really say got away. Like he invited me to his wedding and everything. And I was just like, no, I can't. But <laughs> Oh, Shanine, this is an important thing to point out. The one that got away. Yes. It's romanticizing an idea, you know? You're living in the past. I want you to think about the future and be able to extend yourself with all of your gorgeousness towards the future, towards opportunity. Truly during quarantine, everyone was like cycling through their past grievances, their heartbreaks, their regrets, everything. And then now suddenly there's also a pressure to get everything figured out immediately, which is also sort of a jarring idea. 
but I want you thinking about your next five years and who has like the awesome privilege of being a part of your life with your open invitation. I want you to break away from that past because it's useless. It's fruitless. And Valentine's Day sucks <laughs> just as much as New Year's Eve. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, I want the best for you. And I know that you recently moved. Yes. And so you're still building your community. So you're in a place of like a little loneliness or figuring out the whole deal. Do you have good friends where you are? I do. Good. The last three years I've been doing Galentine's Day. Like I take my girls out on the 13th and we go to the movies. Yeah. The Olive Garden. We get each other. Yeah. Endless breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of advice do you feel like you get from your friends? Like what's the way you talk about this and what's the kind of stuff that you hear back from your friends? I'm curious. Recently, I guess they would say I probably don't take it slow enough. Oh, there have been times when I've taken it too slow. Oh, I took a vow of celibacy in my late 20s. Oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this is important. Yeah. Good question, Pen. I've tried all angles. I, like I said, I took a vow of celibacy from like 25 to 28, almost 29. And I dated during that time. And I was, I tried to be more focused on emotions and like actually getting to know that person. I don't know. I think it's putting yourself on restriction. I feel like I wasted three years of my life. Yes. yes. <laughs> three years of my sex life is gone and I can't yeah. get it back. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. And then they turn into fuck buddies and they don't go away. Right. See, here's the problem with fucking when you want. You always want to fuck. Yeah. Guys, let's be honest. Yeah. You know, I'm all for whatever the truth of sexual liberation is, especially that of women. I'm for that. I don't know how much it has to do with the ease of familiarity and intimacy that we have in our culture. And maybe for some people it is, but I'm saying, like in my experience, so I'm saying we're encouraged actually to have a kind of sex that is quite coarse and casual and actually the human body is a very subtle system and the human heart is even more subtle, let alone the mind and the soul. And the, To me, I think it's actually quite deep and it's not that casual often and we try to think of it as a casual transaction, but... Who has ever had an easy, casual, transactional sexual experience? Please call in and speak up and let us know how many you've had. And let's make sure we speak to the partner you claim it was with and make sure they feel the same way. Because to me, I actually think we're talking about some really deep stuff here. Now, I want to kind of enshrine, what, I think, what you were saying, Anna, which is like, you shouldn't be repressing. Right. You shouldn't be repressing desire. But we're always going to have that automatic desire that can be channeled, I think, into something higher. And, you know, to me, if it's coming from the right place, I think that exercise that you engaged in for three years is a very positive one. Very few people do that. And because we have attached it to the sort of bondage of women of the past, like I get why it's not a popular idea. <laughs> but, well, you're right, because there's very much a societal element to it. Yeah. Something you said in your letter that really touched me was your fear, maybe, that you may not be setting an example for your boys in terms of how they're going to engage in relationships with women or, you know, their romantic relationships. And I really respect that and admire that kind of, not the fear, but the awareness that you have, that you want to be able to provide that for them. That's really important. Knowing that I didn't have that growing up and knowing that I want to create that for my sons. I have a 14-year-old stepson and a two-and-a-half-year-old and yeah, like my wife and I, we think about that all the time. And so I really want to just honor you in that. And look, maybe in your fear, your fear might be that you are not showing them what like a long-term relationship looks like. Mm -hmm. But you are undoubtedly showing them a lot else. 
and no one can show them everything, you know? Like, you should try and take that pressure off of yourself in some ways. Like, again, try and do what you can do. Do as much for them as you can, as I'm sure you do, you know? Like, of course, basically every mother does. <laughs> it's just a beautiful thing that you're aware of that and that you're striving to be an example for them. That touched me, among all the other things, so much. Thank you. Yeah, because they are in high school and middle school, so they're getting into girls. You're right in it. Yes, <laughs> I am right in it. <laughs> well, I love it that you love your boys. I just want you to lead with an open heart as you approach dating because you feel incredibly lovable. Thank you. What I feel like someone in your position, it strikes me as needing, you seem like you have a lot of resources as a person, meaning or character in your heart and in your mind. You don't seem like you're coming to us at your wit's end. But you strike me as somebody who has capacity and a joy for living. I do. Yeah. You strike me as somebody who, if you were given a few holds, imagine climbing a rock wall, you need something to hold on to. There is great relationship science out there now that didn't exist in decades previous. Our modern pop culture and a lot of our friends and the movies we all watch, they're all going off of old, bad ideas about relationships and the reality of them. There's a lot of good new science that's been built over the last 20, 30 years where we understand like the truth of love relationships between men and women, especially because they're the most studied. And what is and isn't true about them is actually becoming a lot clearer than I think the way people casually talk about them. I'm not sure what books to point you. I'm just thinking of some of them. None of them suddenly make it better. None of them suddenly cure all. Yeah. And I would imagine you've probably read some of them. Yeah. Um, Steve Harvey's. Before he made the movies about Think Like a Man, I read those books. He had a follow-up, straight talk, no chaser. And it was more of like a man's journey and how he thinks in the mind of a man and when he's ready to actually settle down. And there was another book, I don't remember the author, but it was called Men Don't Love Women Like You. And that was the more recent one I read. And I really liked that one. It had more things to go out and practice. Like when you're at Starbucks, what are you doing when you're waiting for your order? You're usually in your phone, right? Like get out of your phone, make eye contact with the people in the room. Yeah. So like I started doing that. It worked. Good. I started to meet more people. They just still weren't the kind of people... Like, it was still turning into, like, one-night stands. Oh, God. That's like taking you for granted. Yeah. It's not romantic. Can I send you a reading list? And I'm not saying it's going to change your life here. I'm not saying that it will maybe do anything other than give you something to read for some time. I'm thinking of a, about a half a dozen books right now. I can't name them all. I just feel like I want to think about this a little bit and send you a reading list because when I say relationship science, I'm talking about like stuff that's really based on more than personality and opinion. There's some really interesting, kind of surprising stuff that is emerging that if you look in the right places, you can be like, oh, and like I said, nothing is going to suddenly solve this, right? But like, I think there's a lot of bad advice out there. And I think you and I think all of us have had a lifetime of probably some pretty pitiful advice. And what I was trying to say before is that you strike me as somebody who with a little bit of the right advice, and I'm not necessarily the person to give it to you. I'm thinking of pointing you in those directions. Like you could do a lot with a little bit of great advice. Penn, you're right about the idea of like the gender identity, how we think about ourselves as like women are like this and men are like yeah. this. And it feels too complicated to really box us in. 
in those ways, I think. Sometimes men say, this is like real talk. Let me just tell you how a man thinks about women. And it's like, yeah, but who are you to speak for all men in this case and tell all women how to respond to that? So what you're saying on a, yeah, I think it's like there's a huge reduction of what it is to be a man or a woman. Yes. So what about like dating apps? It feels repetitive. A lot of, hey, what's up? Yes. How's your day? Oh my God. Oh. I hate that. <laughs> yes. It's like, so I'm supposed to initiate this. Like, okay, well, I'm making chicken piccata for my two sons and like, no, I don't have time for a what's up. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be honest. I get a little overwhelmed with dating sites. Yes. So, yeah, I've been traveling more. Like I'm trying to meet people in person, but I know that we're just in that area. <laughs> I really want to, like, honor you in the way that I feel like you show up to life. And I believe in you. You just seem like, again, you have capacity. Yeah. You bring a lot to the table. And I don't know what it is. I'll never know what it is for you. But you seem like you're ready to have the life in terms of love that you're ready to have. You know, I think it's just like some little tweaks here and there. Thank you, Pen. Yeah, thank you so much, Janine. It was really nice to talk to you and hear your story. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I really appreciate you having me on your show. I'm such a huge oh, fan. I love you with all my I heart. I so appreciate <laughs> you, too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And listen, fuck Valentine's Day. Keep with your tradition. I will. Bye, Shanine. Bye. Penn, I cannot thank you enough for your wisdom and for coming on today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. 